to direct your attention to this morning are found in Numbers, and we'll be looking at chapters 7 through 10. Numbers 7 through 10. Now, obviously, I'm not going to read the whole of it, though I'm tempted. Um, In fact, I just want to direct your attention to the very end of this section, the last two verses. Where in Numbers 10.35, the text states, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Please pray with me. Father, we want to to live in a way that would honor you. Not just in our actions, but in our affections. In our thoughts, that, that all of our thoughts would conform to your thoughts. And so, Father, we need our minds to be shaped. We confess that, that we don't always view you rightly or understand your word rightly or your instructions rightly. Lord, we, we don't always have perfect theology. And so we need to be reminded. We need to be renewed in an understanding and we need to be taught and so father we pray that you would teach us so that we would know you rightly and worship you rightly for you are worthy of such worship and we pray that you'd use your word in these four chapters of numbers to bring that about we ask these things in christ's name amen So I've entitled this morning's message, All In. And uh, when playing a high stakes game of poker, not that you guys do that, but nobody ever makes that statement all in unless they have absolute confidence that they are going to win that hand. And that's really the, the, the sense Israel has as they are marching toward the promised land. They have absolute confidence that because God is for them, nothing is going to prevent them from accomplishing his will. And that's, that resonates in these last verses that I pointed out to you. Israel has nothing to worry about because God's on their side. And therefore, they can go all in. They don't have to hold anything back. They can trust him. But my title, All In, uh, actually has a double meaning. And really the emphasis of that double meaning is on the fact that all of Israel is involved. In fact, the main point of these chapters, what binds these four chapters together, is the fact that all Israel is involved in this march and in this worship. The instructions on worship. They emphasize how Israel is to serve God and follow him together. So just like chapters five and six emphasize faithfulness, in particular faithfulness to vows, these chapters emphasize togetherness and unity. And this is seen in the seven sections of these four chapters. 
All give. All are purposed to receive God's blessing. All of them are served by the Levites. They all participate in the Passover. They follow God together. They all gather together. And in light of all of that, they are also all blessed. Let's look at that first point. All give. Now, chapter 7, you'll note, is a very lengthy chapter. And if you're familiar with it, and even if you allow your eyes to look at all that's said, it's very repetitive. And it's very repetitive for a reason. Because each of the tribes do the very same thing. This is all about giving. The, 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 chapter 7 is about the consecration of the tabernacle. And all the tribes bring offerings to consecrate it. And they all bring the same thing. In fact, that is the point of all this repetition. All the tribes were involved and they all gave equally. And so it, it emphasizes a unified devotion to God. Unified devotion to His worship. I, I recently came a, across a statistic regarding giving in the American church. And one of the things that it pointed out was that um, less than 10% of church attendees give at least 10% of their income. In other words, only, only 10% of the people that attend church, generally speaking, tithe. Now, I don't think that's the case in our church, but it's a telling statistic. It's kind of shocking. But the point of this passage is that's not what's going on. A hundred percent. Everyone, all of the tribes of Israel are all in, are giving, are devoted to the tabernacle worship. Except for the Levites. They don't give. All the other 11 tribes do, but not the Levites. Now, it's not because the Levites are stingy. It's because they're already serving. They've been set apart for a special service to the Lord. And the involvement in the other 11 is actually emphasizing that the Levites aren't alone in serving the Lord. But all the tribes are devoted. They're all in it together. So even though the other tribes wouldn't serve in the tabernacle worship, they were still just as devoted as the Levites were. And that's the point. Now, the gifts that are presented are presented by the chiefs of each tribe. Now, you'll recall that each of those chiefs chiefs were selected back in chapter one. They were directly appointed by God. And so they represent their tribes as they present their various offerings. And the gifts that they bring are fitting for tabernacle worship. You'll notice that they, they give carts and oxen. Now, the carts and the oxen are very fitting because you'll recall the Levites had to carry um, all the items of the tabernacle. And actually, they're distributed according to the needs of the various Levitical tribes. There was three Levitical tribes. The Merorites, they get the largest share of oxen and carts because they're the ones carrying the majority of the smaller items. And so they needed more carts. All the, you recall, the, the poles and, and uh, um, the other things to keep the poles up for the tabernacle. And then the Gershonites, they get a little bit less because they have to carry the curtains. And the Kohathites, they didn't receive any oxen. And you'll see that in, in chapter 10. Or sorry, um, yeah, what verse is it? Uh, the, the, 
Kohathites didn't receive any because, you recall, they're the ones that are supposed to um, carry the holy things. And they would carry those on their shoulders. And so they weren't um, to put even the holy things upon a cart. They had to be carried on a pole and those poles were on their shoulders. They weren't to be touched. So the other items that the Levitical or the other tribes bring to the Levites to consecrate the tabernacle are those things that are fitting for tabernacle worship, for the offerings. So if you look at chapter 7, verse 13, this will give a list uh, through 17. This will give a list of the things that they carried. Same thing for each of the tribes. One silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels. One silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. They also gave a golden dish of ten shekels full of incense. One bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering. One male goat for a sin offering. And for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs, a year old. It it almost sounds like, you know, the 12 days of Christmas song. But all of these things are given... Um, for to present the offerings and actually for the five Levitical offerings that are listed in the book of Leviticus are used here. The only offering that's not is the guilt offering. And that's because there's no sin that's been committed uh, that they're known that they're aware of. And so they don't have to offer up a guilt offering. These are just offerings of dedication. You also remember these are the same offerings that the Nazarites would give up after their completed time of dedication to the Lord. But we can't miss the significance of the last verse in this chapter. Because this is, it's all building to this last verse. Verse 89. And when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with Yahweh, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. And it spoke to him. Well, first notice that he mentions the cherubim. The cherubim were the two angels that were uh, that, that made up essentially the mercy seat part of the ark. They were carved golden angels. And there was also two cherubim on the curtains that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And those cherubim represented the angels or the angel that was placed outside of the garden after Adam was expelled from it. And that was to guard the entrance because The Garden of Eden was the dwelling place of God, and he could not have sin in his presence. And so they were expelled. And so the cherubim are like guards. And so the point is, is that God is here. And just as he once spoke to man face to face, when he spoke to Adam, he again is speaking to men, revealing himself to them. Now, just... Let it hit you how significant this is. After Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, God didn't speak except for a very few times. And that was often in dreams. And there's a few other cases where he directly appeared to men like Abraham, but it was very rare. So thousands of years had passed and God had only spoken a little bit to a very few amount of people. And now... God has given instructions for the tabernacle to be built so that he can speak to man directly. 
as, one, as Moses gets to speak to him face to face. And you'll note the emphasis of this word speak. It's mentioned three times in this one verse. So Moses could speak to God every day and pass along then his words to Israel. And this is so that they might know God's will so that they could know him and dwell with him and and know what they need to do to remain in his presence. So hearing from God really was the reason why they presented all of these gifts. This was so that they could know him. They give all these things so that they could have his words. And these are kingly gifts that they offer up. Which shows what's really valuable. Right? In our culture, in fact, in every culture, we value money. Right? Or prestige or power. But truly, God's word, his revelation is the most precious thing that we could ever possess or have. There's nothing more valuable to us than the Word of God. It's, it's worth the cost of a new car. It's worth the cost of a home. Now, we tend to take that for granted because you can buy a Bible. On the you can get a Bible for free. If you want, we have lots of free Bibles we give away. But it's easy to forget because we have such access what we actually possess. In fact, it's shocking. I think we take this for granted so much that most Christians actually spend more time listening to talk radio or reading Facebook or um, watching movies or sports programs than they actually do in the Word of God. They spend more time on fluff and insignificance than in hearing the Creator's instruction for what makes real life. And the Israelites, they get it. They know the value of hearing directly from God. And that's the point of chapter 7. And that brings us actually to the next chapter, chapter 8. And we're this, this, this point uh, that all receive God's blessings is what's emphasized in uh, verses 1 through 4 in the, the lampstand. It... it You see, Aaron is called to set up this lampstand with its seven lamps. Uh, The lampstand, also called the menorah, uh, is a symbol of Israel even to this day. And it was purposed as uh, a symbol of actually uh, the first week of creation. Uh, You'll note that in Genesis 1.14, God sets two lamps in the sky. To dictate the seasons, right? That's what the word that's used here, lamp. It, it marks the seven-day calendar, the, the sun as it rises. So the tabernacle is being constructed, again, to be a sort of miniature Eden. And what's emphasized in this paragraph is what Aaron is told to do with the lampstand. Look at verse 2. When you set up the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. And Aaron did so. He set up its lamps in front of the lampstand as the Lord commanded. So what's in front of the lampstand is the table with 12 loaves of bread. 
And those 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So this is the symbolism, is that the glory of God radiating from the lampstand, from those seven lamps, is shining upon the 12 tribes of Israel. So this lampstand affirms symbolically what the Aaronic benediction that we saw in number six affirms verbally. That God wants his people to dwell in his presence and experience his peace. But you'll notice that the emphasis is on actually the high priest's role in causing this light to shine upon Israel. In order for Israel to receive the glory of God's presence, they need a faithful high priest to prepare these lamps for them to bring this blessing about. brings us to the third point. All the tribes are served by the Levites. Uh, In verses 5 through 26 of chapter 8, this section here speaks to how the Levites again were set apart to serve God from the rest of the tribes. And then uh, verses 5 through 13, pretty lengthy section, details how the the Levites are cleansed through uh, various offerings. But I want you to note, especially verse 10 of chapter 8. When you bring the Levites before Yahweh, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. So notice that the whole congregation is involved in this laying on of hands. They're all there together. Or at least represented by their chiefs. They're all there. And they all lay hands. And you recall the significance of the laying on of hands is, is, is there's a connection being made. When the high priest would lay his hands upon a lamb that's going to be sacrificed, that lamb is therefore, uh, in a sense, taking on the, uh, the sin. It represents the person whose hands are laid upon them. Likewise, these Levites represent each of the tribes of Israel. They're representative of the tribes. That's the point. It reminds us of what it says in verses 17 through 19, that the Levites took the place of the firstborn of the Israelites. Look at verse 17. All the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both man and of beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. And I've taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And I've given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the people of Israel to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement for the people of Israel that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary. So you see the emphasis. This is all about the Levites. But what's the repetition? For the people of Israel. For the people of Israel. For the people of Israel. The Levites serve not for their own interests, but for the people of Israel. Yes, in a sense they have prominence because they're the ones serving in the tabernacle. But they do so not for their own gain, but for the gain of everyone else. And verse 19 stands out because it says that 
the purpose of the Levites is to prevent plague. And they prevent plague by making atonement. And they make atonement by killing any intruder that doesn't belong. This section closes with the Lord's instructions for the service of the elderly Levites. Uh, no, no Levite could serve after they reach 50, so there's a forced retirement. And we're not given any explanation on why they're forced to retire. Um, but there's an insistence that they can do no work. But they could assist by keeping guard. Look at chapter 8, verse 26. They minister to their brothers in the tent of meeting by keeping guard, but they shall do no service. Now, I find it interesting that the elderly Levites aren't allowed to do any, any sort of, any part of the moving process of the tabernacle or serve as priests in setting things up or, or the high priest after the age of 50. Um, but they're allowed to guard, to keep guard, lest God's wrath come upon the camp. In summary, the point of this section is that the Levites represented the rest of the tribes and they served to protect the rest of the tribes. Like the, again, the, the Levites don't serve for their own interests. Now, think about this. They might not want to have served as movers of tabernacle items. You know, and there may be a, been a Merorite that's like, how come I can't be a Gershonite? How come I can't touch the holy things like the Kohathites? How come I can't be a high priest? Like they, they just did what they were told to do, and they served again for the interest of Israel. They might not have wanted to put um, another, uh, their life in danger by serving the holy things. Because, again, if they were to uh, look upon one of the holy things without it being covered, they would die. So they might not have wanted to do that. There may have been somebody that said, hey, I don't want to serve as a guard because I don't want to have possibly uh, somebody else's blood upon my hands. The point is they didn't serve because this is how they personally wanted to serve. They served here because this is where God told them to serve. They do these things because God told them to. And again, it just shows a contrast that I think dominates much of our mindset regarding ministry in America. And it tells us a lot about God's mindset for ministry. In America, we tend to just serve in areas that are comfortable for us, that are convenient. We only get involved in fellowship when it works with our schedules or serve in ways that might promote us or that we might be able to include on a resume. But you see, no what's in it for me mentality here. Really, God's, God's view of ministry is you serve for the interests of other people, not according to what you want. Like That's the emphasis. The Levites serve for the rest. What the other tribes need is what matters, not what they want to do. This concern for the whole of Israel is continued in chapter 9 in the command for the participation of the Passover. 
in verses 1 through 14. This says in, in verse 1 that they, they participate in the Passover a second time. So they participated in the Passover the first time after they left Egypt. So another year has gone by and they participate again. But the emphasis of this section actually isn't in just the isn't on the partaking of the Passover, but this small group of people that can't participate because of uncleanness. And so they come to Moses and say, we're unclean. We can't participate in the Passover. What do we do? And so the Lord tells Israel that um, they will need to wait one more month. Everybody needs to participate in the Passover. And if because somebody's on a journey or because um, they're unclean, then they can participate one month later, exactly one month later. But that's it. And note the emphasis in verse 13. If anyone who is clean and is not on a journey and fails to keep the Passover, that person shall be cut off from his people because he did not bring the Lord's offering at its appointed time. That man shall bear his sin. So all needed to participate. If they chose not to participate because they just didn't feel like it, they would be cut off. The point here is that God doesn't doesn't lead people to choose to worship him according to their own desires. He has a set time and a set structure for when he wants to be worshipped. Now, he's, he demonstrates grace in giving provision for people who, because of providential circumstances, could not participate because they were sick or because of work they had to be away. So he, he gives mercy. God is a merciful God. He understands. But for the person who's just lazy or self-centered, who chooses not to worship Yahweh according to his instructions, well, they've chosen not to worship Yahweh. That's his point. You ignore my instructions regarding this. You've cut yourself off. Deliberate neglect will bring his anger and judgment. Now, note the word keep as in keep the Passover. That word is used 11 times. Keep it, keep it, keep it. It's not negotiable. Sometimes translated observe. And there's a secondary emphasis on keeping at it. It's a appointed time, right? Not at the Israelites' convenience when they feel like it, but when he told them to. Precisely according to his instruction. Now, somehow in our culture, we've, we've gotten it into our idea that God doesn't care about how we worship him. That if we want, we can celebrate communion with Coke and tortilla chips. Or we can put on a rock show and call it a worship service. We can sit in our pajamas and watch television. A church service from the comfort and convenience of our own home and call it church. Brothers and sisters, that doesn't come from the word of God. That is from our own imagination. God does care very strongly how we worship him. And if we read the book, especially here, as Israel reads this, they come to understand God has really strong opinions about how he's worshipped. 
And actually, that is the point. And, and, and the importance of gathering together actually is inherent in the Passover itself. You might recall that the Passover lambs could not be sacrificed outside of Jerusalem, eventually Jerusalem. Right now, they're not there yet. They, they had to be sacrificed at the tabernacle and then later on in the temple in Jerusalem, but no other place. Which meant that all of Israel needed to travel to Jerusalem for the sacrifice. Right? Deuteronomy 16, verse 5. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that Yahweh your God is giving you, but at that place that Yahweh your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt and you shall cook it and eat it at the place that Yahweh your God will choose. Notice not where they choose, where God chooses, at the time God chooses. This emphasis is purposeful. He has an opinion. And and God actually calls this feast a holy assembly, meaning gathering. It's a holy gathering, all of Israel together. He wants Israel together, not spread out doing their own thing. He wants them together for worship. Exodus 12, 16 and 23, 7 calls it a holy assembly. This emphasizes the importance of, again, everyone participating in order to remember what God had done for them. So Passover was an act of worship. And so to fail to gather together or to choose not to participate in the Passover was also an act of worship. It was a worship of self or a worship of another God, but it wasn't the worship of Yahweh. Do you follow? God said, you will do this or you are declaring that you do not worship me. So he he takes it seriously. And that's the point. The togetherness emphasis is followed up in the next point in verses 15 through 23, where all of Israel follows God together. This describes the presence of the cloud and fiery pillar that, that symbolize the presence of Yahweh with Israel. Everywhere that Israel went, or I should say Israel followed everywhere that cloud or that fiery pillar went. God was leading them. God was guiding them. God was protecting them. Right? And that's the, the point. All Israel followed God together and God was the one leading. This passage is full of repetition. In fact, the most repeated phrase is, at the command of Yahweh. We look at Numbers 9, 18. At the command of Yahweh, the people set out. And at the command of Yahweh, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of Yahweh and did not set out. So the, 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 the emphasis here is the people followed the leadership of God. There was no maverick Israelite choosing to go off whenever he wanted to, choosing to do his own thing. The emphasis is on together following God. 
right? They, they all obey together. And, and everything goes well for Israel at this point. Precisely because you don't have any mavericks. They're all following God's instructions, doing exactly what He tells them to do. And, and, and this is a picture of Israel and its glory. This is what Israel was always supposed to look like. But as you know, of course, that doesn't last. In fact, the very next chapter, we'll see things go sideways. Once they start thinking about themselves, not Yahweh's instructions, not the best interests of the people around them, when they start thinking of themselves, things start to get really bad really quick. But for now, they're great because they're following God's instructions. They're and consider that it wasn't obvious why God would choose to move when he would move. His leadership doesn't follow any sort of human rhyme or reason. Sometimes it would dwell for, in one place for one night, and the very next morning, get up and go. I mean, just imagine if you were a Levite, you did just set up the tabernacle. That's a lot of work with a lot of care that you need to exercise. And then you've got to take it down the very next day. And then other times... It would stay for a week or even a month. Like, look at verse 22. And the people didn't need to understand why God decided to wait for that period of time or why he decided to get up and and lead them on after a short period of time. All they needed to do was trust him. Following God isn't about us knowing the future. It's about trusting Him. He will lead us if we trust and obey. And the greatest threat to that is our own self. Alright, we just need to follow His instruction. He will lead us where we need to go. Again, this theme of unity and togetherness is, is seen even more in chapter 10. Verses 1 through 10 describes the construction of the silver trumpets. These two silver trumpets uh, were used to gather Israel together for two reasons. Either they're being attacked, they're being called to war, so blow the trumpet as an alarm, or they were to be blown for various festivals. Those festivals where Israel was supposed to gather together. And God actually tells Moses in verses 9 and 10 that they will serve as a reminder of the covenant. Right? When God hears the trumpet being blown, it reminds him of his promise to protect Israel from all its enemies. And when he hears the trumpet blown at festivals, it's a reminder of all those blessings that he has promised them already. It's a reminder of the covenant they have with Yahweh. Chapter 10, verse 35. Again, what's emphasized. We're at the very, this is the very end of this section. We've read it already. Arise, O Yahweh, let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. A reminder of their protection. And when it rested, it said, Return, O Yahweh, to the ten thousand thousand of Israel. Reminder of their blessing. Right? God wants to protect and He wants to bless. And these trumpets are used to remind God of, those, of that covenant promise. 
Now, obviously, God doesn't need to be reminded of these things. Right? God doesn't forget. It's not, it's not really for God. It's, it's really for Israel's benefit. As they hear those trumpets being blasted, they will recall God's promises. And they will recall that God has not forgotten His promises. And this is the point. Israel needs God above everything else. They don't need more chariots. They don't need more swords. They don't need more people. They don't need more food. They don't need more water. What they need is God. If they have God, they're secure. They're safe. And the trumpets were to remind them of that. But again, notice it wasn't just to remind God. It was to gather them together. God wants all of his people together to experience his blessing. leads us to the last section where all are blessed. Uh, Chapter 10, verses 11 through 36, uh, really is kind of a conclusion to all of what's happened so far in the book of Numbers. And verse 11 actually marks a geographical change in the narrative because this is when Israel begins their march away from Sinai and they're marching towards the promised land. Verses 1 through 36 Again, serve as a picture of Israel in all of its glory, being everything that Israel is supposed to be. Right? All the various tribes do everything that God has told them to do. Right? The chiefs lead at the setting out with Judah in the lead. Right? Because the, the line of the tribe of Judah, the Messiah is eventually going to come from Judah, and he's going to be the one that eventually leads absolute victory over Israel's enemies. So Judah's in the lead. All the other tribes do what they're told. The various three tribes of the Levites take down their sections of the tabernacle and carry them according to the instructions given in chapters 3 and 4. And then verse 13 sets, uh, states, they set out by the command of Yahweh. Again, reminiscent of what we saw earlier in chapter 9. And again, the point is they're all doing what they're told and they're all doing it together. And it's Yahweh who's leading them. It's a, it's a beautiful picture about how things are supposed to be. And so if we were going to stop, the book of Numbers stopped right here, you would think, these guys are unstoppable. They're like a steamroller. And then you have this great blessing of praise with Moses saying, Arise, O Lord, defeat your enemies. And then the very next chapter... It all comes undone because they start to complain. But this is a picture of how things should be. And there's a there's a similar picture given in the book of Acts in the early church. If you look at Acts chapter two, verse 42. You recall these. Famous. Descriptions of the early church, they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching into the fellowship the breaking of bread and the prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Then they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then just another chap- 
few chapters later in chapter 4, verse 32, it says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And notice verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. It's a very, very particular word that's used. Right? May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. It's the same idea. The early church was experiencing what Israel was experiencing up until things start to fall apart when they get selfish in chapter 11. They're together. They're unified. Caring for one another. The point here isn't that that the early church was communist. The point is that the early church was so focused on the glory of God and trusting in His promises that the the people cared about one another more than themselves. Recall also that the book of Acts, the purpose of the book of Acts is to narrate what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven when He sent out His 12, 12 apostles to proclaim the gospel, as it says in Acts 1.8, as witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? The book of Acts is about the narrative of these 12 apostles going out, spreading the good news to all the Gentile nations. And this actually leads to Numbers 10, verses 29 to 32, with Moses' conversation with his brother-in-law, Hobab. Hobab was the brother of Zipporah, his wife, Moses' wife, the son of Jethro. Sometimes Jethro is called Reuel. And some translations mix it up. Is this referring to Jethro or his son? Most commentators say this is referring to Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab. And this brief encounter is placed here as an indicator of how Israel is supposed to serve as a light to the nations. They're doing everything God's told them to do, following his instructions, doing it together. And then there's this little just section about inviting the Gentiles to come and go with them into the promised land. As the 12 tribes follow God's leadership instructions, God's going to use them to draw other people to himself so that he can be a blessing to them as well. So you see this appeal by Moses in Numbers 10.32. And if you do go with us, whatever good Yahweh will do to us, the same we will do to you. Just recall the original promise made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation, which God has done here. Millions of Israelites on the march. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This little note about Hobab is loaded with the purpose of God. God's purpose for Israel was not just to raise up Israel and bless Israel, but for Israel to be a blessing so that all the families of the earth 
could be blessed in the ways that he has blessed Israel. And so Moses is spot on when he says to his Gentile brother-in-law, come and go with me to the promised land. And the particular way that they're going to be blessed is by God giving them rest. And it's noteworthy that it says that the ark of the Lord is said to go three days before them to seek out a resting place. Consider Jesus' words again the night before he died. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? A dwelling place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that there where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Jesus, the Messiah, died and lay in the grave for three days precisely to prepare a place for his people to dwell with him. And he's promised that he will give them resurrected bodies so they can bear his glory for all eternity in his permanent dwelling place. And after he rose from the dead, he sent out his 12 disciples into the nations so that others too could be brought into the dwelling place of God. To bring in Gentiles from every tongue and nation. And once the fullness of the Gentiles have been brought in, then all Israel will be saved. Romans 11. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is the point. God wants all people and all Israel to be together with him in his permanent dwelling place. God wants all believers Jews and Gentiles together to enjoy the blessings that he has procured for them in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us as orphans or as individuals, but that you've saved us and caused us to be born again and put us into the body of Christ. That we might be members of one another, even as we're members of of you. And Father, I do pray that you would help us to just deepen in our awareness and understanding of the significance that the church is a body of believers and not just an institution of individuals. That it would shape the way we think and how we approach church and fellowship and, and communion and worship. Lord, that we would worship more and more in the way that you are pleased. 
that our thinking would be more and more conformed to your desires and your design and less and less according to just habit and tradition. We want to be, we want to you to be pleased in every, every element of our lives, but especially in our worship. And so we ask that you would continue to renew our minds through your word in Christ's name. Amen.